to be with you this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 27. Um, we've been making our way through the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's about to be Advent, uh, which you don't, if you don't know what Advent is, that's okay. A lot of people don't. We'll talk more about that as we actually enter the season next week. Um, and, and we're not going to totally leave Isaiah behind. We'll be adding things to Isaiah and we'll be kind of skipping around Isaiah a, a bit more. Um, Isaiah chapter 27 is, uh, is at the end of this three or four chapter kind of vision of the future of what God is going to do. It's this nice little unit uh, in the book of Isaiah that it's, it's good to sort of end on before we move in to Advent. I just got a new Bible you see this, how shiny it is? My other Bible ripped off the cover. Uh, it came unbound. And I'm now at the point in my life where I had to consider the size of the font. So it's like much easier to read this Bible. And I just feel like it's luxury now. And I'm 35 and this is just where things are now. Um, I'm embracing it. All right, Isaiah chapter 27. We're going to read uh, this whole thing. It's, a, it's only 13 verses. And that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting servant, serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And that day a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I the Lord am its keeper, Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sins. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, the habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. This is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brooks of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is still your word. We thank you that you own it. 
We pray that you would speak to your church this morning and that the word would be sharp, it would pierce us, it would lay us open, and that you would do good work in our hearts. We pray that we would grow to love and trust you, Lord Jesus, which you fully deserve. You have loved us first and shown yourself to be trustworthy. Amen. Uh, This chapter is um, a series of images. One commentator I was reading called it a mosaic. It's a helpful, helpful image. It can be kind of confusing because the image shifts so many times. You can easily say, what is going on here? The first image is that God will defeat this dragon, Leviathan, he calls it. We, we would call this dragon the devil or Satan. He's got this twisting giant serpent, this sea dragon. And God with his sword will come and destroy this dragon. That's the first image. The second image is that of a vineyard that's fruitful and flourishing and growing and full of life. And God is like standing in the middle of the vineyard saying, ah, I just love my vineyard. I love my people. And I I wish somebody would come and try to mess with my vineyard. I, I wish that thorns and briars would try to grow up. I'd be happy to swoop down and rip them out of the ground and throw them into the fire. I love my vineyard. And one day it's going to fill the whole earth. That's the second image. The third references what we've seen a couple weeks in a row now of this other city that is opposed to the city of God. And here, the city that is the enemy of God is in ruins. It's a husk of itself. It is after the warfare has come. The women are taking the bare branches and and throwing them into the fire. There is nothing there. It is desolate because God has come and brought judgment to that city. The final image is of another thing, a growing thing. And instead of a vineyard, it's a wheat image that one day God will reap and he will bring the grain into the house of Israel and the people will be brought to the holy mountain and they will hear a trumpet and they will worship. So you have these series of four images together that are ultimately pointing to the victory of God in the world. Now, in our sort of um, very... Uh, self-satisfied way as modern people the the language of the devil of Satan doesn't quite strike us the way that that language has hit many people for most of history we are too busy reading the news and seeing other versions of visible devils in the news to to quite have any sort of time for the idea of a man uh, in a red suit with a pitchfork. Um, of course, the idea of a, a dude in red with a pitchfork is not in the Bible either, but still, we don't really have time for the idea of this invisible, lurking devil in the world. But of course, Scripture does not shy away from that. It's, 
Never making Satan, the devil, this sort of all-consuming being who's like in this arm wrestling match with God and who's going to win. It's it's never like that. But neither do the scriptures say, well, he doesn't really exist. That's kind of a myth that we don't believe in anymore. The devil is acknowledged in Scripture. One of the many things that Jesus does in the Gospels is deal with demons. And you can't really read the stories of Jesus without reading the stories of Jesus confronting these powers of evil. So here in Isaiah 27, we are talking about the victory of God in the world and this confrontation with the devil And notice that there is no doubt about the the outcome. There is no doubt about what is going to happen because God is always displayed in the scriptures as entirely in control when it comes to dealing with the devil. There's never any doubt when God decides to act and do something about the devil. The descriptions are never long and lengthy. There's never an extended battle montage. There's never any concern about what God will do in that confrontation. It is just God decides to act. He acts, and it's over. It's done. We are invited, then, as the people of God, to hear his promise in Isaiah chapter 27 and elsewhere, that God will oppose and ultimately bring down the enemy of our soul. And it is helpful to see the kind of uh, life that's partnered with the activities of the dragon in the world. What is the result of the dragon? And we kind of get these counter images within this passage it's God is saying he would want to oppose thorns and briars. And what do thorns and briars do if you are growing things or trying to grow things in some people's cases? Is they choke out life. They make it so that good things cannot grow. So the thorns come in and crowd out life. And they also make it difficult for, for good gardeners or attempted good gardeners to get in there and do their gardening because it's painful. And so what is a sign of the dragon's presence in the world? The the choking out of life, this allegiance with death, this opposition to care and stewardship. These are all signs of the devil's work in the world. And what else do we see in this imagery? This sort of desolation of this contrary city. Ultimately, Jesus will describe the devil as a thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Because everything that the great serpent wants to do in the world is not to create his own thing, but instead to destroy what God has created. He has no fundamental power within himself to create things. He can only tear down or twist or destroy or rob what God has created. He presents himself as a terrifying alternative creator. But when you look closely and you ignore his lies, you see it's all a sham. He has no ability in himself to create. All he wants to do is twist what God has made and make a mockery of what God has done. 
And so when God stands in the midst of his vineyard, that is his people, he says, I will pull out these thorns. I will throw them away. And what happens when, when the great powers of darkness and evil are removed? There's flourishing. The vineyard explodes into life. It fills the whole earth. Because what is a sign of God's presence? It's flourishing. It's life. It's greenery. It's vitality. The devil, the serpent, can't help but destroy. And God can never help but create. Even when God is active in the scriptures to cut back, it is so that you might be pruned. But why does pruning happen? So that more life can come. Life flows from God. It flows from God. And the opposition to him are the powers of death. And ultimately what Isaiah foresees is he, he looks down and hears the boasting of God that he will eliminate the powers of the serpent and destroy him in one act. Now, what's tempting to do is you can say, you can swing wildly from one extreme and saying, I'm too smart to believe that there's a devil. That's, that's silliness. What we need is more schooling and we need to just be nice people. But there's another way that you can make a mistake when you're thinking about the devil. You can say the devil is in charge of everything and he's behind every bush and, and every dark corner. There's the devil. And he might make me do things. And that is not the case. What's the sign that the people have a problem with the devil in Isaiah chapter 27? The mention here is of these uh, other altars, these asherim poles. What happens to partner with the powers of the serpent is idolatry. The people enter into an alliance with the devil, this serpent of death, and the sign of that alliance is idolatry. For Israel, it's, it's literal, it's tangible. They build actual altars and these worshiping poles where they worship other gods. And it is a sign that they've entered into an allegiance with the serpent. In Isaiah chapter 27, the vision is that when the serpent dies, idolatry dies. There's no more worshiping these fake things. Isaiah especially, but all the scriptures will make a mockery of idolatry. How can you worship the things that you made with your hands? That doesn't even make sense that you would call God the thing that you carved in your wood shop 20 minutes ago. And it's easy to say, well, I don't build altars. I don't go to a pole and worship some fake God. But we are sneakier in, idol in our idolatry than the Israelites were. We make idols out of all kinds of things. 
out of our bank accounts that we grow, out of our retirement funds, out of our reputation, out of the things that other people will say to us or give to us, out of the dreams that we, we ultimately say come from God. We idolize them instead of the one who gave us the dream itself. We are extremely creative in our idolatry. And when God moves in and starts to destroy the powers of the dragon, he says, that the altars need to be crushed. And so you can't have this theoretical freedom from the devil and your compulsion to keep making idols. If the allegiance is going to die, the allegiance is going to die. If the serpent is going to die, the altars have to die. Because God is coming to destroy everything that destroys life. Because he loves you far too much. And, and helpfully, Isaiah gives us a vision of what God wants to do. The image that he brings is, again, an image of fruitfulness and vitality, brings in the grain from the harvest. And what he says is the people who've been scattered everywhere, the people who have been lost and confused in the enemies of Israel, Egypt and Assyria, he's going to gather them out of where they were lost. He's going to bring them to the holy mountain of God. And the, and the clue to what he's describing here is that he says there's a trumpet blast. And the people of Israel know that this trumpet blast on the mountain of Judah should bring to their mind the command for jubilee. When the year of jubilee happens in Israel's calendar every 50 years, whether or not they ever observed it, we don't know. But every 50 years, they were supposed to blow the trumpet and everything and everyone was supposed to rest and celebrate the fruitfulness and protection that God had brought to Israel. And they were supposed to be free from debt. They're supposed to be restored to their land. Everything was supposed to be a celebration of the life and vitality and fruitfulness that flows from Israel's God. And what Isaiah is saying is that at the end, when the dragon is dead and the idols are crushed, he will call everyone to the mountain of Jerusalem, blow the trumpet, and jubilee of jubilee starts. It is freedom for everyone. Now this, Isaiah chapter 27 is a proclamation of God's victory in the world. And we are sitting in a place and a time when we are saying, man, I really wish that would happen. I mean, is anybody sitting here and saying, man, I'm glad this is all done. If this is what it looks like for the dragon to be dead, I feel like I've been oversold some things. I never envisioned the year of Jubilee sitting in a sanctuary, sparsely populated, mask on my face, reports of COVID blowing up in the whole world. I never envisioned that for the year of Jubilee. And you're right. It has not come yet. But God has not left us here now in the place where we have to just sit and hope that maybe God will do something. Because what the scriptures will affirm is that God has moved decisively to ensure that the serpent would die. He has struck the death blow definitively and absolutely. This is from Colossians chapter 2. In 
Colossians chapter 2, Paul uses uh, a familiar image for the people who would have read this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. What's the contrast in Isaiah chapter 27? Death and life. What has happened to you? You were dead, but now you're full of what? You're full of life. You're full of whose life? You're full of Christ's own life. And you know it because you've been baptized. You've been raised with him in Jesus's life. By forgiving us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he said aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What did Jesus do? He won victory by defeating the power of sin, by defeating the power of death, which is tied to the dragon's own power. He has triumphed over them and put them to open shame. The image that Paul is referring to is that of a Roman emperor marching back into Rome with the captive king behind him saying, I won, I did it, I have triumphed over these fools, Rome has won. And Paul is saying, Jesus has done this in his own death and resurrection. He has pulled these fools into the city and said, I have defeated this fool, I have defeated this serpent and the dragon. He is dead, he is dying, he is being put to death. And if you have the mark of Jesus' life on you, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it is His life that is promised to you and sealed to you that overcomes the temptations and the death allegiance of the serpent. Today, if you feel like you are entangled in the powers of death, whether that is coming to you by facing real illness and suffering in your life, or whether you are facing the powers of death by being entangled in sin or being entangled in anxiety, if you are looking at the world around you and you feel like the serpent is pushing in on you, Jesus is standing before you and saying, if you have my name, you have my life. And the death that the serpent brings does not own you. I do. And one day I promise you, just like I triumphed over that fool when I walked out of the grave, I will surely, surely, surely walk you to my mountain and bring you to Jubilee. 
All is not right with the world. But the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus tells us that one day it will be. That he will finish grinding all the powers of darkness into the dust. And with it go your idols. If today you've come here and you know that you've been clinging to these other fake gods, these pretenders to the throne... This scripture helps you see that they are tied not just to some, you know, category mistakes, not to some overvaluation. They are tied to the powers of the darkness of the devil himself. And God is calling you to give them up. Whatever it is, you've, you've idolized uh, uh, political power or you've idolized your, your money, you've idolized your relationships, whatever it is, only you know with the help of the Holy Spirit, it is time to grind them up and leave them aside. And as surely as God has won a victory for you on the cross, he will continue to win victory after victory after victory for you until the day you see him face to face. Jesus and his life will bring flourishing to you and to the whole world. Leave aside the allegiance to the way of the dragon. Instead, come cling to Jesus. Pour out your brokenheartedness over the world in the way that it is. Confess freely to him the way that you have made promises to partner with it. And let him bring you in and bring you closer again and again. He is the champion, not you. And he will be that way for you again and again until we are safely on his mountain, hearing the echo of the trumpet, living in the goodness of his life forever. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promise of your word. We look to you and trust, Lord God. We confess to you that we often do not trust you enough. We, we fail to trust you far too often. And we're so grateful for your patience with us. We're so grateful that you love us enough to, to pull us along despite the ways that we try to pull away. God, we, we want to be free from the works of the dragon. We want, we want death to be destroyed. We want COVID to be destroyed. We want all of these uh, signs of darkness and suffering to be destroyed. God, we're asking you for the help that our idols might be destroyed. And Lord Jesus, we pray for endurance. We are so very tired at times, so weary. We ask for the, for the endurance that comes from you. We long for the day when we hear that trumpet blast on, on Jerusalem and we live in light the rest that you've won for us. May you, may you bring it quickly, Lord Jesus, and keep us until you do. Amen.